Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is uh, Wednesday at 5 o'clock Central Time, and you know that is normally a time Dr. Peter Kapsner and I have an Old Testament person we talk about, but this being Holy Week, we're going to divert just for one week, and we'll be back with Old Testament next week. But this week, we've invited Dr. Randy Nelson to join us. He's the Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies and the Professor of New Testament Studies right here at the University of Northwestern. I learned uh, that he and Peter have had lunch more than once together. <laughs> we me. have indeed, Bill. Yeah, yeah. Do you, are you feeling a little left I, out that you were invited? Because it was a good conversation. Out. Yeah, no yeah. lunch. Um, you guys are both PhDs. Yeah. I'm a C student, so there we go. <laughs> and Randy even buys when we go out for lunch. Does it just he really? It's part of his That's other-centered nice. heart and joy that he demonstrates. Absolutely, I like that. Yeah. We're going to talk today about the life of Christ, and I can't wait. Randy, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. You've been hiding somewhere because I, I learned about you recently, and here you are right here at the University of Northwestern, and you've never been a guest on my show until today. 25 years at Northwestern. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, it's it's been great. I was a student from 82 to 85. Okay. And uh, coming home, it was kind of weird with my uh, professor still uh, there, and some of them anyways, and they became my colleagues. It took them a few years before they let me call them by their first name, though. So it was, <laughs> I had to earn that. Yeah, and Peter was telling me how much he admires you and thinks you're awesome, and then Peter's kids love you, and uh, Rick Matson, who was on the show last week, he was gushing about you, so I thought, I, got, I have to meet Randy. And then you were so nice enough to respond quickly when I invited you to do the show, and I said, can you do Wednesday at 5? And you said, yeah, I can make that. So, And that was you. yesterday. <laughs> don't reveal everything about me, Randy, sorry, if sorry. you don't mind. Make me, allow me to appear more organized than that. That's <laughs> okay. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to ask too many probing questions to get things started, but I do want to uh, ask, we talk about the life of Christ today, it's a full hour. Where do we start with this conversation? Oh, wow. You know, I've taught this course every year for about 20 years. It's a quad course, so it goes seven weeks. Uh, and we usually start about historical background. Uh, the first question I ask uh, the class is, do I have any first century Jews here? Uh, <laughs> no, no hands get raised. And so we spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about the historical setting, the cultural setting, uh, the political setting, because as a 21st century American, we're going to read the things that Jesus said and did from our cultural perspective. And a lot of times we're just going to get it wrong. So I spend quite a bit of time painting the background, and then we get into the teachings of Jesus. And I've used different textbooks. Uh, recently I'm using a Harmony of the Gospel, so we actually read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, weave together as a, a single chronology. And so we start from the birth of Jesus, we go all the way to his crucifixion and resurrection. Yeah, and if somebody wants to get into this background like you're describing, obviously can't take your class, but if you could say a bit more about that idea of how important it is to understand the first century world in which they were operating, because so much of what's being written in that time is through that kind of lens. So I don't know if there are books you'd suggest or ways or resources if people want to study the life of Jesus, where can they go to do this background? Yeah, so there are a lot of uh, background books, uh, customs uh, of uh, Bible and geography, and then uh, there's a book by, uh, it's called the Old, or the New Testament uh, Background Commentary uh, of the New Testament by uh, Craig Keener. 
uh, and he goes through all the books of the Bible Gen- uh, from uh, Matthew to Revelation, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and he tells you all the social customs and cultural conventions that you and I are just going to be clueless about. Do you have an example, just off the top of your head, of, of something that the way they would have seen the world at that time that would be maybe unfamiliar to us, but really brings to light some parts of the Gospels? That's a great question. I wrote it and asked Peter to, re- to read it. Anyway, <laughs> frantically scribbling that down, yes. Yeah, so, you know, uh, this is upper room uh, discourse in John chapter 13, and Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, I've been at a high school summer camp as a director, and I've actually done that. It's, it's very humbling to wash the feet of a high school student and then to have them wash your feet. But it's not exactly the same. Hmm. Uh, back then, they had household servants who would do that uh, as a menial task. Uh, and you need to understand that if you understand what Jesus did for his disciples, it wasn't about hygiene. It wasn't about uh, clean feet. Uh, it was about humble service. And so then I talked to students, what are some ways that we can practice humble service today without literally washing each other's feet? So I think that'd be a good example. Or another one that I use is uh, Joseph finds out that Mary's with child. She's probably all of 12 to 14 years of age at this point. Mm. Uh, and he goes to divorce her. They're just engaged. Uh, can't he just send her a text or post it on social media? <laughs> right. No, he can't do that. Uh, he has to uh, legally divorce her. If uh, one person dies, uh, the other one is a widow or a widower during that engagement period. Uh, and to break it off, it requires a legal certificate of divorce. Those things are those are things we're just going to miss uh, mm-hmm. when we read the Gospels from our 21st century perspective. Mm-hmm. It's so important. I, I think one of my favorite books is um, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Dr. Kenneth Bailey. Yep. And it's one of those books that you say when you, as any, anyone here in the class, a first century Jew, you go, well, of course, because we're going to make misinterpretations all the time, aren't we? Yeah. We can't help it. Yeah. And these things are readable. I mean, it might take some time. It's not just sort of your average literature, some of these books. But I remember when I would first start engaging in these kinds of books, I would just sit with a computer screen and type in terms that I didn't understand. And, and over time and, and sort of slowly, you begin to feel like you're actually standing in that world to some degree. And that's, that's what you need to do. You've got to transport yourself back in time. We're talking about not just 2,000 years, but we're talking about very different geographical locations, very different cultural perspectives. So we don't have an honor-shame society today. That was an honor-shame society back then. We're ruggedly individualistic in our culture. They were much more into corporate identity or collectivism. Uh, they had household servants. Mom doesn't fall into that category. Uh, so there are things that, uh, that they had. Uh, a patriarchal family, uh, they lived as extended families. I suppose some Somalian families kind of do that. They, mm-hmm. they buy one house and they live uh, multiple generations. And then, of course, you have the patriarch. Who makes the decisions for the family? What are you going to do for a job? I'm going to tell you what you're going to do for a job. Who are you going to marry? I'm going to make that arrangement for you. Mm. You don't have to worry about that. All that stuff is taken care of. That's a very different world than the one that we live in. Mm. Yeah, I was just talking with some of my students in the in the sexuality course that I teach that they struggle trying to figure out, so who would I even want to date? How, how would I even want to find somebody to spend a lifetime with? And even that individualistic question is very different because, as you're saying, in that time, marriages were arranged and families were very differently together. It was a really different kind of community that Jesus was ministering within. It, it was. In the household, you know, you think about uh, uh, this uh, Friends of the Paralytic, they have to dig a hole through the roof to lower Jesus down through. And I'm thinking, how are they going to dig through shingles and plywood <laughs> to do that? Well, the roofs were made of wood and bran- or not wood, but branches and mud, and you can literally dig through them. Hmm. So again, there's things that aren't going to make sense. Hmm. And did we ever talk about the courage of the paralytic man who's being lowered down? Wouldn't that take some courage on mm, his part? That's, yeah. I mean, we always celebrate the the the, the tile rippers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, right? True. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, to be exposed in that way, I would imagine coming through the roof because I would think being crippled in some. Seen, in some scenarios for the religious leaders said you're probably sinful and other stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah. I would imagine he's in a pretty desperate situation. He would have been reduced to begging in that kind of a cultural context. 
um, would have relied upon family and friends to take care of him. These are these are really good friends, though, to be willing uh, to help him out. What's interesting there, you know, the multitudes gathered about around Jesus. His his reputation preceded him. But as you read the Gospels, there are times where the crowds inhibit his ministry, and that's one of them. The paralytic can't get access to Jesus because the crowd is inhibiting access to him. So his friends get creative, and they, they go hold through the roof, and they loan him down. But I, I, you know, point I think is fair that uh, to take some courage. But again, I would imagine this guy is desperate. He's been paralyzed. Uh, he In that society, uh, again, uh, there weren't social programs to take care of him. He would have been on his own unless he had some family or friends to take care of him. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus would be asking specific questions, like when he encounters Bartimaeus, yeah. and he is uh, blind from birth, right? Yep. And he approaches Jesus, and Jesus said, what would you like me to do? And I was curious, because is is that kind of the way Jesus operated and worked? Did, does he want us to tell him what we want? You know, I really love that passage. I you know, too, it's, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. There, are, there are a lot of blind people that are healed in the Gospels, and oftentimes those episodes are juxtaposed with the spiritual blindness of the disciples. We're just talking about in my uh, class today. Uh, the disciples were hard and heart, and they were understanding what Jesus was saying. They were spiritually blind. The very next episode, Jesus heals a blind man. He heals him in two stages. Is it because Jesus is impotent? Is it because the blindness is too hard? Or was this a symbolic act to, to symbolize the disciples coming to sight in Jesus and seeing him first as Messiah? And then later is the Son of God. Uh, I think that's what's going on. But Bartimaeus, I mean, wouldn't you love Jesus to ask you that question? What can I do for you? <laughs> Bill, just, you know, here, yeah. here's a blank check, Bill. What would you like? Yeah, yeah. I've always thought, too, of the significance of Bartima- Bartimaeus wearing this blind beggar's coat, which is how he was identified in society. And the passage said, when his friends were taunting him, you know, he wants to, he wants to talk to you. He gets up, removes his blind beggar's coat, and approaches Jesus almost in my head as if it meant he's never going to need it again. That was just a thought. There's no biblical basis for it, but... You know, his faith actually begins before that. Uh, When he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David was a messianic title. He sees things that even Jesus' disciples don't see. Uh, Jericho, where this takes place, is, is the next step before you get to Jerusalem. Uh, people coming down from Galilee would go on the eastern side of the uh, the Jordan River to avoid going through Samaria, and then they would come out about Jericho, and then they'd go 18 miles, a 3,500-foot ascent into J- Jerusalem. So if you were a beggar, that's the place to be, because by the time they get to Jerusalem, you know, there's hundreds of beggars there. And so this was smart on the part of Bartimaeus, uh, and he reached out to Jesus in faith. And what's, what's really fun about that episode is I, I tell my students that faith in the Gospels is trust in action. People who put their faith in Jesus always do something. So uh, you think about Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus healed her of this fever. Fevers were considered a disease back then. And what does she do? She serves them. Faith is always trust and action in the Gospels. People do something when they have faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Bartimaeus is a classic example of that. So good. Dr. Randy Nelson is my guest. He is the Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies right here at the University of Northwestern. So if you ever think of your kids coming to... University of Northwestern. This is the kind of talent you guys will have. <laughs> Dr. Peter Kapsner and uh, Dr. Randy Nelson, both professors right here at the university. Impressive. I, I, it's unparalleled, I would say. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. There's any kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pipe down, Kapsner. All right. Okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take a little break and be right back in just a minute. <laughs>
Welcome back to the show. Uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are usually doing an Old Testament character on this time uh, of the week, but uh, because it's Holy Week, we've asked uh, Dr. Randy Nelson to join us. He's the Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies here at the University of Northwestern. And so we're talking a little bit about uh, the life of Christ as it pertains this, uh, to this week as well. So if you have a, a question you'd like us to uh, tackle, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Peter, you got a question for Randy? Yeah, and I think we're going to get into some of those Holy Week events in just a minute. But sometimes even in reading the different accounts of Holy Week, they have some differences in them between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And I think sometimes people wonder why that might be. But your Harmony of the Four Gospels book, I'm guessing that it gets into some of the background about why they were writing. They weren't necessarily writing straight biographies. They were writing to certain audiences, and that can even help us understand the events of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Harmony of the Gospels, there are, there are a number of these. This one happens to be in the NIV, uh, and uh, you have to make some decisions. Uh, and, and I talk to my students about this. Uh, if, if you come to the Gospels and you expect them to read, like, modern biographies, you're going to be disappointed for a couple of reasons. One, they're, they're written in the genre of a Greco-Roman biography, and they don't follow a strict chronology. Now, there's basic agreement in the chronology of the four Gospels, but there are some differences. How do you account for that? Is one right, one wrong? For the ancients, it was more important that something happened than exactly when it happened. So, for example, here's a real, uh, an easy example, the, the uh, temptation of Jesus. Mark says he was tempted over 40 days. Uh, Matthew and Luke identify three temptations. Matthew and Luke disagree on the order of the second and third temptation. Who's right? Well, by the standards of modern historiography, you have to make a decision who's right, who's wrong. By the standards of ancient historiography, they're both right mm-hmm. because it happened, even if they differ on the sequence of events. And so we see this in the Gospels, and I prepare my students for that. Uh, the other thing is is uh, uh, we have what's called a paraphrase. Uh, even though your uh, Bibles have the, the sayings of Jesus in quotation marks, they're paraphrases. And uh, you get to the, the last week in life of Jesus, even the words of institution, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't have the words of institution, but the, the first three Gospels, they have the words of institution, but they disagree on the wording. Uh, again, who's right, who's wrong? Well, they're all right because they're fair uh, representations of what Jesus said, even if not verbatim what he said. And so you have to take those kinds of things into account. So chronological things, uh, selective accounts, um, different paraphrases. Now, what we do note when we see those changes by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is they had a vested interest in, in what they're writing about Jesus. They are different individuals. They're writing to different audiences at different times to address different issues. And so they emphasize different aspects of Jesus. And when I tell my students, I said, now, if your dad was to describe you, what would that look like? If your mom was to describe you, what would that look like? If your roommate was to describe you, what would that look like? What about a best friend? I said, now, would any of those, those characterizations of you, would they exhaust who you are? And of course, no. I said the same thing with Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the promised kingly Messiah. Mark is the suffering servant of Yahweh. Uh, Luke is the ideal human being, and John is the divine son of God. So do we have four different Jesuses, or do we have four glimpses of the same Jesus? And even when you put those four glimpses together, you still have an exotic who Jesus is in all of his physical, psychological, and spiritual complexity. And even when they shape the narrative of Jesus's life, like you said, they're not necessarily as concerned about a straight chronology, like it was this and then this and then this. They put events next to each other to teach some points. I'm curious, we were reading as a family this Sunday, some of the events of Holy Week. And one of the accounts, I think it comes from Luke, 
is the Hosanna Palm Sunday story, Hosanna in the highest, and he comes down. Yep. And, and immediately after that story, then we see Jesus wishing and longing that it could have been different, but their time has passed. And then he turns over the tables in, in the temple of the money changers. So what's happening in that narrative? I mean, they're, they're, these are not just a bunch of individual stories. There is a flow that you yep. have to pay attention to. Yeah, so Sunday's a triumphal entry. Uh, Monday, uh, Luke almost kind of blends that, the uh, triumphal entry with the uh, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, Matthew and Mark put it on, on Monday. Uh, John puts it early in the ministry of Jesus, so there, there are some differences. Uh, but the, the cleansing of the temple, uh, a lot of scholars uh, believe that that is the... Uh, the signature event. This is the straw that's going to break the camel's back. Jesus has angered the Pharisees up in Galilee for three years, uh, and they want to kill him. Uh, They've actually said they want to kill him. Uh, He has different priorities than them, and we can talk about that. But what they lack is political power. They have popular power. You know, we think of the Pharisees as bad guys, but back then they were actually looked upon favorably. Uh, About 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time period. Uh, And uh, Jesus has made them angry. They lack political power. Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and the Pharisees, who hate the Sadducees, are going to join forces with them, and the Sadducees have political power. Uh, there's a Jewish proverb that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and they had a common enemy in Jesus, I think for different reasons. The Pharisees disliked him because of religious reasons. The Sadducees uh, disliked him because he's rocking the, the political boat, and they're afraid they're going to lose their position with the Romans. Hmm. Got to get rid of them. And, and so in this early event, Jesus knows that the temple is ground zero for all of this tension. So he's walking into something, and he's not pretty—he's not very meek about this situation. I mean, if we were standing there, what would we have observed in his turning over the tables and sort of what was his state of mind in so doing? So the uh, the court of the Gentiles is uh, large. The, the Temple Mount had been enlarged by Herod uh, the Great to 30 acres, 22 football fields side by side. The court of the Gentiles was on both sides of the temple proper, and it's huge. Uh, if that whole area was turned into a marketplace, there would have been tremendous commotion, uh, smells. We were talking about smells earlier, uh, sounds distracting. The, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place of prayer uh, where anybody, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, could come and pray to Yahweh, the one true God. Rabbis also used it as a place to teach the disciples and, of course, debate each other, which they, they love to do. So what do I imagine happened? I don't think that Jesus stopped all market activity. I don't think that was his, his plan. I think his plan was to make a symbolic statement and a statement that's ultimately going to lead to his demise. He's going to be killed uh, because mm. of his challenge of not only the Pharisees, but the uh, the Sadducees who had control of the temple at this time period. So uh, I think we've seen some righteous indignation. Uh, Jesus is angry because they've turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Uh, and it's a symbolic action. It's a, an act of judgment that the temple, because of the, the, uh, the deeds of the priests and the Sadducees, it's going to be destroyed. Mm. Uh, and it's linked with the cursing of the fig tree, as you know. Uh, and it, it seems so cruel. Jesus gets up in the morning, there are no figs on his fig tree, and he, <laughs> he curses it. You know, did Jesus get up on the wrong side of the bed? And, and if you look at those episodes, that the way they are, they're weaved together, uh, you see that they're intended by, especially Mark, uh, to be seen and interpreted against the, the backdrop of, of each other. Just as the fig tree is failing to bear fruit and is cursed, the temple is failing to bear fruit because of the religious leaders, and it too is going to be cursed. Mm. Yeah, we never know where he he went to Bethany each night that no. week. We don't know where he stayed. Maybe they didn't have a continental breakfast. Maybe that you know, <laughs> maybe that's why he was mad at the fig tree for no figs. You know, uh, Jerusalem swelled from forty thousand people to two hundred thousand people during Passover. Uh, and so people would try to stay within the city gates. You couldn't do it, so you stayed in the outlying satellite communities. Uh, 
Bethany uh, probably had a population of maybe two, three hundred people at most. Wow. Uh, probably stayed at the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Sure. Uh, and then he'd make his two-mile commute uh, in. And so, yeah, maybe he didn't get breakfast that morning uh, and uh, he was angry. But I'm going to go with the symbolic action. Really? <laughs> See, I'm going to stick with the goofball answer. <laughs> okay. We're missing the croissant this morning. <laughs> I love it. Well, when you're talking about the, the Gospels and how people will say, well, they have this in different order, mm-hmm. you know, the temptations. And, of course, that has people saying, well, there's contradictions in Scripture. What do you say to that? Yeah, I, 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 what I would say is you, you've got to judge, judge the Scriptures by the right standard. It's unfair to take modern historiography that didn't begin until after the Enlightenment and apply it to ancient documents. We don't do that with any other documents. Why should we do that with the Old and New Testament? It's not Mm -hmm. fair to do. Uh, Same thing with Paul's letters. Uh, Paul used uh, the style, and this surprised me when I learned it, of an ancient Greco-Roman letter. Uh, He starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the saints who are at Corinth or wherever, and then he would offer this wonderful prayer and thanksgiving section. I thought, wow, way to go, Paul. And then I found out that that's actually part of the literary structure of ancient letter. Hmm. But he doesn't start out in with a block form with the name of the person, their title, and then dear so-and-so and sign it sincerely. So we don't judge him for writing bad <laughs> letters, do we? No. Same thing mm. with the Gospels. They're written by the standards of ancient historiography, and this is the way biographies were written. They weren't written by modern historians writing modern biographies. So if somebody is reading some of the different accounts of Holy Week this week from the different Gospels, they can actually have fun getting into the mind of the first century writers versus sitting back and becoming skeptical and saying, wow, this can't be true because the the sequences are different. Yeah, I I think that's right. You know, and and even that sequence of the the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, there are some differences between uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you can look at that and make judgments of it, but you're judging it by the standards of modern historiography. Uh, Better to enjoy it and say, now, Why? Why did they arrange it this way? Uh, what are they trying to tell us by this? And again, they're, they're trying to emphasize different aspects of Jesus. So that's, I think you're right. I think that's where it gets fun. So good. Dr. Randy Nelson is my guest. He's the department chair of biblical and theological studies right here at the University of Northwestern, as is Dr. Peter Kapsner as well. This is going to be a fascinating study as we talk about the life of Christ. And I, I think after the break, uh, Randy, I don't know if we want to look further down Holy Week, or if we have some questions you'd like to ask, you can certainly send them over if you want to 877-933-2484. If you like email better, maybe you've got a longer uh, question, you can email me at bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com. And also, if you are uh, hopefully reading the Bible together this Holy Week, um, you can be experiencing Jesus' final days before his death and resurrection as we read across the Gospels this Holy Week. I hope you're doing that. You can get a free study guide and, and prayer card right at MyFaithRadio.com. And you can also subscribe to the daily Reading the Bible Together podcast. They're all good stuff. We'll take a break and be right back. Thank you for being 
with us today here at Faith Radio. I always appreciate you listening and tuning in, especially to the afternoon show with me. And I uh, was so glad to have Dr. Randy Nelson on the show for the first time. He's been on Faith Radio programs before, but Dr. Peter Kapsner and I uh, are enjoying our conversation with him as we're talking about the life of Christ. And we're kind of focusing on this week. And uh, Peter, you had a question about Wednesday, yeah, it was which is of, today. It is today. And it was, yeah. it was a little intriguing because I'm fairly familiar with the events uh, of Palm Sunday and, of course, into Monday, Thursday and all of the events over the weekend. But you said something intriguing during the break about Wednesday night and this Mount Olivet discourse and what Jesus was up to that fits in this part of the story. So for people who might not be familiar with what he was teaching that night, tell us about it and how it fits into Holy Week. Sure. Uh, so Jesus is leaving the uh, the temple with his disciples, and Peter comments about how grand the temple was, and it was. If, if you look at reconstructions of Herod's temple, it was it was magnificent. He did a wonderful job. He was a little bit of an egomaniac, and so everything was bigger and better. Uh, but the Jews loved it. People would come from around the world to see the temple. It was just it was gorgeous. And so uh, Peter uh, uh, affirms that, and Jesus says that not one stone will be left upon another. Mm. He predicts the destruction of the temple, which, of course, happens 40 years uh, later at the hands of the Romans with the first Jewish revolt. Uh, so they uh, cross the Kidron Valley. They get over to the Mount of uh, Olives uh, and probably are meeting at Gethsemane. Uh, uh, it seems that the Gethsemane event was not an isolated event. That was a regular place of meeting. And the disciples ask him, what are going to be the signs of, of the destruction of the temple and of your return? And so he goes into what's known as the Mount Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's also called the, the Little Apocalypse. Uh, and maybe just, a, just a, a brief thing about Apocalypse. Uh, uh, we think of the Book of Revelation as a, a apocalyptic writing, and we think that John is doing something new and creative with the Book of Revelation. But if you look at intertestamental literature, uh, a lot of Jewish literature during that time period is apocalyptic. And if you look at the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and even uh, parts of Isaiah have apocalyptic elements in it. So apocalyptic uh, literature talks about the cataclysmic end of the world. Uh, and rather than being doom and gloom, and rather than uh, in, uh, being intended to scare you or confuse you, it's intended to encourage God's people. Uh, the prophetic, that the prophets of the Old Testament simply are what would commonly uh, call the people to repentance— apocalyptic writers call God's people to persevere. You're you're doing well. Uh, Hang in there. In spite of appearances, God wins. And in apocalyptic literature, there's usually this vision of heavenly Santa, an angelic host pulls back the currents of history and shows the the person that history is unfolding according to God's plans and purposes. God is in control. And the good news of apocalyptic literature is, is God wins. And if you persevere, hey, you're on the winning team. Hang in there. Don't give up. And so that's kind of the, the, the context with the, the Mark chapter 13, the little apocalypse, the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus starts to go in and talk about the end times. And, and it can be scary. Uh, there are, there are going to be uh, earthquakes. Uh, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be tribulation. Uh, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. These bad things are going to happen. But he doesn't say to be afraid. He, he doesn't say that you ought to be worried. What he says is to be per, to persevere, uh, hang in there, uh, and, and if you do so, you're going to be saved. Uh, again, the good news of apocalyptic literature is God wins and you're on the winning team in spite of the circumstances. And this is kind of the bad news of apocalyptic literature. You think things are bad now? <laughs> I hate to tell you they're going to get worse. Uh, they're not going to get better and better every day in every way. We're not going to create some utopia on earth. It is going to get bad, and Jesus was preparing his disciples for that. The temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, the world as we know it is going to come to a cataclysmic end, and there's going to be a final judgment. Uh, and uh, following that are the uh, the eschatological parables, like the parables of the sheep and the goats, uh, and this final judgment that's going to happen, and this accountability that's going to take place. 
So, mm-hmm. and in, in some ways, he preparing them to just say, just remember how this works. And especially as I'm heading to the horrors of crucifixion that we're going to be talking about in just a minute, yeah. he knew what was in front of him, but they still seemed at this moment to be somewhat confused. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. In my, my uh, Life of Christ class today, we talked about the exact middle of the Gospels. Uh, and the exact middle of the Gospels, uh, in halfway in uh, Jesus' three-year ministry, uh, we have Peter's good confession. Uh, they, he takes them 35 miles to the north. Uh, Capernaum is his base of his operation. He takes them 35 miles north in the pagan territory. And the first question Jesus asks is usually the easy one, who do men say that I am? Well, they come up with all these answers. And then the more important question is, who do you say that I am? Hmm. Peter gets it right. Doesn't always get it right, but he gets it right. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, hey, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I would imagine Peter's head is getting pretty big at this time. <laughs> uh, but then Jesus does something that Peter wasn't expecting. He gives his first passion prediction. He says, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of religious leaders. He's going to be put to death, but on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. And what does Peter do? He goes to rebuke Jesus. Put this in your notes. Don't do that. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So again, uh, Peter's had this, uh, you know, this, this high uh, emotional experience. This was revealed to you by my father, not by men. And all of a sudden, get behind me, Satan. Mm. And, and the problem is Peter uh, had bought into these popular messianic, ex- messianic ex- expectations that the Messiah was going to be this military and political leader. There were other messianic figures before and after Jesus. Uh, when they died, that was the end of the messianic movement. I don't know if you knew this, but Christianity is the only messianic movement to survive antiquity and that with the dead Messiah. Hmm. How do you explain that? That's, that's pretty hard to explain. So, so here we have Peter uh, making this good confession, Jesus confirming it, but then given his passion prediction, Peter rebuking him, Jesus rebuking Peter, and then Jesus goes on to talk about the cost of discipleship. So if he's a military political Messiah, what kind of disciples is, is he going to have? Political military disciples, right? But what if he's a suffering servant Messiah? Now what kind of disciples is he going to mm-hmm. have? He's going to have suffering servant disciples. So uh, if, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. That's, that is potent teaching, Bill. I mean, you think about why we tend to say yes to following Jesus. He says it right there, but boy, oh boy, how many people, how many of us decide, yeah, I want to take up my cross and suffer too. Yeah, I've always found that passage uh, amazing where Peter goes from declaring who Jesus is to saying, Mm-mm, we're not doing it that way. And then he is told, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Dressing Satan, right? Yeah. Who is uh, doing what? Is he influencing Peter? Is he speaking through Peter? Uh, yeah, apparently he's influenced Peter. Uh, remember uh, when when Jesus tells Peter that uh, he's going to die him three times, and Peter denies it, and, and uh, uh, Jesus says that uh, Peter, uh, that Satan has uh, asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that you'll be strong. So there is a, a, a demonic influence, even during the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're told that uh, Satan entered Judas, mm-hmm. even though Judas went to the, the religious leaders and made this deal with them for 30 pieces of silver. I'll betray this guy I've been following for three years. Yeah. How do you not see the Son of God after you've lived with him for mm-hmm. three years, mm-hmm. doing you know, everything that he has done? Jesus still the storm, right? Uh, and, and this is a divine prerogative, uh, nature miracle, only something God has the right to do. Uh, and he tells the storm to be still. The, the word that, that's used is uh, uh, epitomao, which means to rebuke, the same word that's used when he rebukes the demons. He rebukes the storm, uh, and it stops. And the disciples go, who is this, that even the winds and waves obey him? So they're asking the right question. They haven't been able to put all the pieces together. 
Moving into Thursday then with the Last Supper, and we've been talking about what life would be like in the first century world if we were sitting at that table in particular. What would be some observations that we would make that maybe we're missing right now when we just read these stories in the text? So uh, the, the, the painting by Da Vinci of the Last Supper is, is probably pretty inaccurate. <laughs> uh, the tables were about uh, 10 inches off the ground, and you would lay on your side as you ate on them. Uh, so uh, that was a little bit different. And so this was a Passover meal that they're celebrating uh, Jesus uses that opportunity to to take the bread and the cup and uh, uh, invest them with symbolic meaning. I would imagine, uh, again, I, I don't think they get it. I, I really don't think they understand that uh, this Messiah is coming to die on purpose. I, I mean, he told them, right? Mark ten forty five: the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I just wonder how much of this went over their heads. They just didn't get it. And so uh, this, this uh, bread is my body broken for you. This cup of wine is my blood shed for you. I don't think they got it. Mm. Uh, I think it took the resurrection, really. I think the resurrection and, and 40 days of Sunday school uh, for them <laughs> to uh, get it uh, before Jesus ascended. Mm-hmm. Uh, Randy Nelson is our guest. And Randy, in Matthew 28, and I want to read this first, starting in, let's see, 16, or It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Is that some of the eleven disciples that were doubting at that point? Yeah, so these are the apostles, and uh, again, I think they're struggling. They're they're, they're struggling a lot. Uh, Jesus is able to, to still the storm. Jesus is able to walk on water. They see him as the Son of God, but I don't know that they understand it in the same way that you and I do. Uh, Jesus as divine. Uh, Think about the background here. Uh, These are Jews, and and most Jews in the first century were traditionalists. They they practiced Judaism, maybe not to the extremes of the Pharisees, but they really believed that Yahweh had entered into a covenantal relationship with the people of Israel, and he had expectations for them, and they tried to keep uh, those commandments. So they're strict monotheists. They're very careful not to, to worship pagan gods. And here comes Jesus, you and I talk about him as the second person of the Trinity. There was no doctrine of the Trinity back then. And so I can imagine there's some reservations. Uh, when Jesus got into the boat after he had walked on water, we're told the disciples worshiped him, proskuneo, the same word that Jesus told to Satan that you should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And yet, and yet in this account, Jesus received worship from his apostles. So that it either makes Jesus a hypocrite or makes him God. I'm going to go with the latter. And then stepping into Friday morning and the events of Friday, and I know that we'll get into that more in just a little bit, but I I would imagine as they're now watching him pick up his cross, he's been arrested, it's all of these different events that happen. They must be thinking at some point there's going to be a different outcome. He's not actually going to get killed. Like this can't work this way. I can't imagine what Friday was like as they watched these events unfold. Yeah, so uh, Peter's watching the trial from a distance. Um, uh, During the crucifixion, uh, John is there, uh, but it's mostly female disciples, and we're told that the male disciples are cowering in the upper room. Uh, What typically happens to the Messiah is the Messiah figure gets crucified or killed in war, and then the disciples, the followers of the Messiah, they're tracked down, they're killed, and often crucified as well. So I would imagine they didn't want to meet the same same fate as Jesus. Mm -hmm. I I think they were totally shocked when there's a knock at the door, uh, and it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't think they were looking for that. Hmm. Peter, could you picture us in the upper room cover? Room? <laughs> yeah, that, without any problem at all. You know, without you any know, problem at all. If we were ever in a movie, our lines would be, hey, you guys, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be a bit part. It'd be profound, but it'd be yeah, a bit be a part. Very, yes. very small oh. bit part. Yeah. All right. Dr. Randy Nelson is our guest. We're talking about the uh, life of Christ, and we are... Uh, uh, have time for a question or two if you like 877-933-2484 we'll take a short break and be right back Dr. Randy Nelson is our guest, and Peter Kapsner and I host this hour on Wednesdays. Normally, you know, we talk about Old Testament people, and today we're just talking about the life of Christ because it's Holy Week. And uh, Randy, a great question came in, uh, and it said, Do you think Mary, Jesus' mother, knew he was destined for the cross and was not as confused like the disciples? That's a great question, and I get questions like that in my class all the time, and and the gospel writers don't tell us everything we want to know. You know, what was Jesus like as a uh, an infant, a toddler? Did he go through the terrible twos? <laughs> right, you know, we right. don't know. We get an isolated uh, event at age 12. So a lot of it's speculation. Uh, there's an account in um, Mark where uh, his family, uh, it, it seems like his brothers, maybe uh, some sisters uh, and, and, and Mary were there. Uh, and they come to take Jesus back to Nazareth because they thought he was out of his mind. Uh, and the word that's used for uh, grabbing Jesus is the same word that's used when Jesus is arrested. It can, uh, can even be tra- uh, translated as tackled. Uh, they planned on tackling him, grabbing him, bringing him back to Nazareth because they thought he was out of his mind. Was Mary a part of that? I don't know. Uh, but when he learns later that his mother and brothers are outside of the house, he said, who really is my, my uh, brother and my mother? Isn't, isn't it uh, those who do God's will? Those are my brother and mother. So... Uh, the good news about being spiritually blind or hard-hearted is it's a, it can be a temporary condition. We know that James, the brother of Jesus, our stepbrother Jesus, went on to be one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church uh, and was instrumental in the uh, Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Uh, Mary seems to have come around as well. Uh, scholars speculate that she might well have been interviewed by Luke because we know, learn so much about Mary uh, and what's going on in those events uh, from Luke's gospel that we don't find in the other, other gospels. Hmm. We were talking earlier about just how the disciples would have been maybe fleeing in these moments and some of the events unfolding. And uh, take us into Gethsemane a little bit in terms of what that experience would have been like. So uh, Judas has uh, betrayed Jesus and he's off hiding at this point. Uh, We've got the 11 apostles there with Jesus. Three go a little bit further with Jesus as he goes to pray. Uh, and he uh, prays uh, for this cup to be removed. Uh, Cup is, of course, being a metaphor uh, scholars debate whether it's a metaphor for his destiny or a metaphor for his death, and his destiny is death, so I think both are true. Uh, Praise three times, but he says, not my will, but your will be done. What's, what I think is hard for my students is when they see that the depth of Jesus' struggle, he's agonizing. Uh, Luke says there were uh, drops of blood coming as sweat from his, his forehead. He is he's struggling with his his destiny, 
And I talked through this with my students. Uh, what is, what's about to happen to Jesus? Let's kind of walk through this. Uh, let's talk about the emotional suffering that he's about to endure. He's already had one of his disciples betray him. Uh, all the 11 apostles are going to bail on him. He's already predicted that. Uh, his main guy, Peter, is going to deny him three times. He's going to be before his enemies all by himself, confronted with false accusations and so forth. And you can just imagine the, the emotional turmoil that he's about to experience, and then the physical suffering. Uh, if you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is going to be slapped. He's going to be punched. He's going to be beaten over the head with a rod. This is after a crown of thorns has been placed upon his head. Uh, and then he's going to be uh, brought to a public post where he's going to be strapped and he's going to be flogged mercilessly by the Roman soldiers, the, probably the most graphic scene in the movie uh, Passion of the Christ. And then and only then he's going to have to carry his cross being three-quarters of a mile outside the city gates to Golgotha where he's going to be crucified, unable to do it because he's so weakened from the beatings and the floggings that they have to enlist Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross being for him. And then he's out to the, the cross where he's crucified. So, oh, and then uh, from the, the cross, Jesus is going to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there's also this anticipation of spiritual suffering. I would imagine this is the cup that Jesus has asked to be removed. But at the end of the day, after three requests, he submits to the divine will, not my will, but your will be done. And I tell my students, that may be something he says at the end of his life, but it characterizes the entirety of his life. And to be honest, that's what it means to be part of God's kingdom, placing God's will above your own, submitting to his authority over your life as well as his agenda for your life. So Gethsemane, um, that is um, a, a garden up on a hilltop. And if Jesus was looking from that garden, he could have possibly seen the soldiers with the torches coming from the Kidron Valley up to the garden. Yeah, again, uh, you know, Jesus talks about... Uh, uh, Judas uh, betraying him, and he talks about Judas being destined to betray him. None has been lost except the one who is uh, destined, and this, of course, wow. is a reference to Judas. So I don't think Jesus was caught off guard by any of this. I think uh, I think it was in his second passion prediction where he actually predicted that he was going to be betrayed. Uh, and then his third passion prediction, he goes on to talk more about being flogged and mocked and spit on and those kinds of things. But uh, he's preparing his disciples for things that he knows are going to unfold. Uh, so I don't think he was surprised when... Um, uh, Judas showed up with this crowd. Uh, some debate about who the crowd is. Uh, some think it's a mob. Uh, most likely it was a group of uh, officers or I don't think they're Roman soldiers, but I think they were uh, the uh, the temple police. Uh, I think they worked for the Sanhedrin. They were sent out by the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus and bring him back to the Sanhedrin, uh, tried for his Jewish trial and then Roman trial. Uh, and then, of course, placed on the cross for crucifixion after being flogged. But mm-hmm. yeah, I would imagine... Uh, what he anticipated was pretty horrific. Yeah. Mm. The crucifixion happened outside the city. Would, would that be something that people would go to to watch? Uh, would there be people that would show up to watch crucifixions? Yeah, so this is interesting. Uh, Jesus' trials, he was his arrest was probably around somewhere around midnight to 1 o'clock. Uh, his trials were probably from 2 to 6, his Jewish trials, uh, and then his Roman trials at daybreak, and by 9 o'clock in the morning, he's hanging from a cross. Oh. Uh, so there's a crowd there that is calling for the crucifixion of Jesus, and it seems kind of ironic because at the triumphal entry, we've got Passover pilgrims, we've got residents of Jerusalem, and then we've got probably maybe a couple hundred disciples of Jesus who are all chanting for him. Some of the stuff they're saying is is typical uh, pilgrims greeting, Hosanna, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. There's nothing really special about that. But some of the other things they're saying, blessed is uh, is the, the son of David, 
some of that stuff is clearly messianic, and so there's this enthusiasm. And then as you look at the week as it unfolds, uh, today, uh, Tuesday, is the day of controversy, and Jesus is debating all these religious leaders, and of course he uh, he outsmarts them, he outdoes them, and the crowd marvels, and they're so excited about uh, Jesus doing that. So the question I ask my, my students is, what's changed? The whole week, it seems like the crowd is, is favorable towards Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons they have to arrest him at night uh, is because they knew if they tried to arrest him in front of the crowd, there would have been a riot, right? So they have to do that, and they need insider information. They need to know when and where Jesus is going to be away from the crowd. Judas provides that for them. Uh, so uh, Jesus knows this is coming. Uh, he's aware of it. Uh, but the crowd, who is that crowd? And I, I tell my students, this is probably 8 o'clock in the morning after Passover celebration in the upper city. This is a stocked crowd. Uh, this is a crowd that's been put there by the religious leaders. This isn't the, the Passover pilgrims. This isn't the residents of mm-hmm. Jerusalem. These are people who are part of the religious community who are against Jesus, and they want him crucified. They've wanted him crucified or put to death for a long time. So Saturday hits. He, he's, he's died in the, the cosmic events of the earthquake and the darkness yeah. and the veil torn, and, and then Saturday it just has to be a devastating day for, for everybody involved that has followed him for these three years. There's a couple of minutes left. Uh, day breaks, Easter Sunday. I mean, take us into the good news of what happened there. Yeah, so uh, Jesus, when he was anointed uh, in Bethany, he said this was in preparation for my burial, right? He never is anointed. Uh, they didn't have embalming back then, so they would anoint the body with somebody before they're buried. There wasn't time. Uh, Sabbath was coming. Sabbath is sundown Friday, so they have to get him off the cross. They have to get him in the tomb. They don't have a time to anoint the body. So the first time they get to do that is sundown Saturday, but now it's dark out. You don't want to go outside the city gates at dark at night. And so the first time the women can go to anoint the body, which was their job, was Sunday morning. They go there. The uh, the stone, uh, which could have weighed as much as 1,200 pounds in front of the entrance, uh, is moved away because they're wondering, how are we going to get this thing moved? It's gone. Uh, the Roman soldiers who were there are gone. Uh, all that's left is an empty tomb and an angel who interprets it for them. Jesus is risen. He's not here. Uh, he's, uh, he's risen just as he said. Uh, come and see where they laid him. Uh, and there were the, uh, the clothes, the sheets that uh, he had left. And he was, uh, he was risen from the dead. And uh, the first witnesses of Jesus' res- resurrection were the women, which is ironic because women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. And yet they're the first witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and just the the spiritual significance of this culminating moment when the power of death has been broken. I mean, this was God fulfilling his promise over all these years about to to fix what had happened in the garden. I mean, this is the moment of our faith. It really is. It's the the vindication of Jesus. Uh, It's uh, a validation of everything that he said and did. Uh, Death did not have the final say uh, with Jesus. Uh, He he had victory over uh, death. Uh, and provides us with assurance that we, too, are going to have victory over death. Death has lost its sting for us as believers. If that 1,200-pound stone was moved and there wasn't a bunch of empty WD-40 cans around there, <laughs> then it was, in fact, divine that it got moved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Think? Yeah. yeah, it was a supernatural event. The, the whole event, uh, it just, it's, uh, you know, the, the angel appears, the, the yeah. Yeah, Roman soldiers who are these tough guys, they fall as though dead men right. uh, because of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, when I, I think of that scene when he's being whipped and in the Passion of the Christ. And was there someone that was moderating the beating? Because he was to get 40 lashes, but, you know, 28 could have killed the guy. Mm. And do so, they, they want to stop it mm-hmm. before 40? So uh, Roman law uh, uh, only allows for 40 lashes. And the, what they usually do is 39, so 40 minus 1. Okay. The Romans knew no such rule. Ooh. So the brutality that mm. you see, and even the different kind of weaponry they would use, 
is very consistent with what we know about the Roman soldiers. They, they were brutal. And that was, I would imagine that that scene represented what happened to Jesus. And once a man was condemned to death, they were no longer held accountable for their behavior, were they? So uh, they could be as brutal as they wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they're just following orders, uh, these yeah. Roman soldiers. Yeah. yeah. What a fast hour. It really was. I just, I, I do, you know, that, that. I didn't to, get to half the questions. Right. I got. And people are texting yeah. in all yeah. the time. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and to get through the theological significance is one thing, but to actually be standing in the scene like we have in this last hour, I mean, these, these events actually happen. This is not a theology belief. This is a story that's true. And, and I think, Randy, just amazing to just take us into those events. Yeah. And thank you for what you do for students here at the University of Northwestern and to you, oh. Peter, as well. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's really been a blast having you on the show. We must do this again. This is fun. Agreed. Don't you agree, Peter? No, I totally agree. Yeah, it was so fun to depart from the Old Testament this week yeah. to just take us into Holy Week like Always this. Always agree so. with me. Never disagree with me. I, oh, I, you know. <laughs> I agree. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Randy Nelson has been my guest. He's the Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies. That's all the show we have for today, but it's been a great show. Thank you for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful night and a blessed Holy Week as we continue uh, thinking and preparing our hearts for this week and the beautiful beautiful, glorious Resurrection Day on Sunday. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.